0: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may
2: vary.
1: Hello and welcome to Crimeland. My name is Julie J, and this week I'm joined by the brilliant...
2: Colin McGlitchy
1: ...to talk about the lipstick killer. On, I said lipstick. I was like, I have to get Colm McGlincheon to discuss
2: this one. Yes, that's it. <laughs> I, I bought lipstick a few weeks ago. There you go. Not for me, but it's one of the few uh, presents that I can buy my wife that I don't feel kind of like, you know, intimidated buying because lipstick Interesting. works. Yeah, because it works on a on a, on a on a number scale is my understanding
1: this is and you can get the name of the shade and you're like yeah this is what i'm here for none of this like not sure for size kind of thing
2: yeah it's like rouge number two you know what i mean everyone's they, 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 there is no lip size uh when it comes to lipstick it's it's a one size fits all so uh, do you, you know, find
1: you can buy it free from judgment
2: uh i can but well uh, whereas I? I was in the duty free and there are some shades and i know I know, back, uh, I insisted on paying the tax, that's how rich I am, no I'm not, uh, but, but, but I, I was like, oh, I want whatever it was, Rouge number 27 or something, and uh, she like took the lid off it, and I was like, it's not for me, just put it in the bag, and I'm good to go, uh, so I'm like, I'm, I'm happy, my wife says she wants uh, lipstick, I, I know I can't go wrong, Do you know what I mean, whereas I That is help-
1: a great gift, and actually, because I have to say now, you're Mrs. Sarah, she really rocks a nice lippy, doesn't she?
2: Yes, because well, I think that's the the it's, it's down to numbers. Everything should be numbered the way lipstick is. Be, <laughs> life would be easier. Do you know what I mean?
1: It would be easier. And now I do. I don't want to, you know, set you up for fall here, column. The references <laughs> to lipstick are fairly minimal, but like there is something in there. So you know, we will we'll take that box for you. I promise.
2: Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Have good you heard of the
1: Lipstick Killer? did you hear I this haven't. case of
2: no. Yeah, it's, it's
1: an interesting one. Um, I'll, 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 I'll talk you through it now. So it takes place in the 1940s, so like a little before our time. A little. Just a little, just a tad. <laughs> so let me tell you about the lipstick killer. So in 1946, Chicago was a city which was obviously adjusting to new po- post-war reality. And like so many other cities around the world, we're kind of attempting to move on from the human rights atrocity. Of course, that was World War II. On January the 6th, 1946, the Degnan family were getting ready to go back to school after the Christmas holidays. Betty is 10 and Suzanne is 6, and Jim and Helen, their parents, put the little girls to bed in keeping with their nighttime routine before later retiring for the night themselves. At some point, Jim hears Suzanne, uh, sees the little six-year-old, get up and go to the loo, but also hears her going back to bed without any issue. So Jim goes to wake the girls up the following morning, the Monday morning. Betty is up and about, but he notices that Suzanne's door is closed, which is odd as Suzanne is afraid of the dark and as a result, always leaves her door open. He goes into her room and his worst fears are realised. Suzanne is gone and the window is open. So the Degnans call the police and the police arrive immediately. They start looking in the bedroom, of course, which is like the obvious place to look. And one detective notices what looks like tissue. But when he looks closer, he sees that this is actually a ransom note demanding $20,000 for the safe return of Suzanne, which would be like obviously huge money at the time.
2: Yeah, it's a weird way to leave a ransom note. You think you kind of try and leave it in a prominent place?
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, okay. it's a strange one because it seems like they they were actually going to dispose of it until somebody's like, "This is actually ransom." Exactly that. That if you actually are after money,
2: you like. I, make... I imagine that's how Fred would leave a note for you and then be surprised as to why he didn't <laughs> he didn't find it. You know what I mean?
1: He does. Do you know what? He's desperate for writing on scraps of bit be- of paper and receipts. <laughs> I spent Co- my whole life going through bins because he's thrown out some very very pertinent piece of information is in the recycling and he says I think I wrote it on a napkin you're <laughs> the, like we the, have notepads all over this house
2: the, the, the Dun Stores 5 euro off vouchers I've lost many of them unfortunately but anyway,
1: con. this but podcast they, is sponsored by Dunn Stores thank <laughs> you so
2: much but the, despite the sloppiness the note was found
1: it was found but it, it is it is a bit anomalous like absolutely like you're spun on it's just a bit strange so also, so like this is not a rich family. So they live in this like completely ordinary apartment. Jim is a government worker and Helen is a stay-at-home mom. So it, there's obviously like no way they're going to be able to come up with this kind of money. Like not a hope. So the ransom note. how much money was for twenty
2: thousand at the time? Was it? And, you 20,
1: said- and this is when you're going to ask me how much is that in like today's terms? I'd say like a million euro. I don't know. It's, okay. Like, but it's it's definitely a lot. By 1946 yeah, yeah. standards, I, you know, I, I I don't know how much it would be exactly, but a good bit. Um, so the ransom note isn't signed, but the Chicago police send it off to the FBI. And this kind of surprised me. So the Chicago police said at the time that they didn't have the technology to kind of, I guess, dust it for prints or get prints off it. So they sent it off to the FBI because they were like, "We don't have the technology. So can you just find some prints on this for us?" Which kind of surprised me in 1946.
2: Okay, well I don't know the history. There was I can't remember. There was some TV show I watched where it was about the time when fingerprints became a a thing, but Mm -hmm. I can't remember. I, I can't remember what it was or what era it was in, but I remember feeling surprised that oh, surely we've always had fingers. So surely there could have been a way to get this before. But <laughs> I
1: know it seems like kind of, you know, it's the old kind of Sherlock Holmes stuff of, you know, they wrote the ransom note on the notepad and then they get the charcoal and they, you know, they, they go yeah. through the notepad and they, like you. Piece would of think, Yeah. Like you would think obviously like the advent of technology, like it would improve over time, but you would think it's something that like kind of goes way back. So it just surprised me that. They couldn't do this locally, that they have to send it off to the FBI it kind of seems, you know, a bit extreme. But anyway, that's what they said at the time. So all through the day. So this is the Monday. It's January 7th. They're searching for poor little Suzanne. There's a huge hunt for her. And obviously it's the case of all hands on deck with the local community. And in the backyard on the Monday, the police find a ladder, which they presume that the kidnapper used to enter to Suzanne's bedroom window because it had been located on the first floor. So they, the person definitely would have needed something to, like, get in the windows. They're like, it probably was this ladder, which just happened to be in the garden. But I was going to
2: say, he didn't leave behind his own ladder because, like, what... Who wh-
1: goes around with a ladder?
2: Well, what, what kind of money do you have that you can just recklessly leave a ladder behind... Like have like
1: a of- yeah I, that's actually very true like you need to ensure your ladder it's like a bike like a ladder is you know a valuable item and because they asked the neighbors and the neighbors had said oh yeah we've noticed this ladder down like this little alleyway close to the apartment box so it was obviously i like clearly the killer just happened upon this ladder and this you know what a, what, what is what he'd used so it wasn't his personal ladder but then okay. again, you know, when people say I've seen that ladder before, like, I mean, do ladders not all look the same?
2: Um, yes and no, I suppose I haven't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not
1: something you've considered.
2: Yeah, well, if uh, I, I know people have ladders. I don't know what type of ladders they have. I haven't examined it that closely, you know.
1: We're not discerning ladder people is what we're saying. But they look, they found a ladder anyway. So that's the main thing. They found a ladder. Um, and then also this woman called Ethel, who was a maid for a neighbor's family, um, the Flynn. So they live like above the Degnans in this apartment building. She comes forward and she says that she heard the family dog barking in the middle of the night. And also Suzanne saying, but I'm sleepy. So, again, like very important piece of information there. And a guy called George came along. So he was a key witness so he says that he saw a white man wearing a fedora and an overcoat. He was about 35 and he was about five foot nine carrying a shopping bag at about 1am in the area. So they think, okay. OK, that's a bit strange. Like that's somebody maybe, maybe we should be looking for.
2: So, and this was back before there was late night shopping.
1: Yeah, like a huge, like he said, it was, it was a really large shopping bag. And they were like, OK, that is actually a bit strange. And, you know, it's one o'clock in the morning. Anyway, this guy is like 100 percent. He's like, I saw this guy gave a very detailed descriptions. Um, and about 7 p.m. that night, the Monday night, less than a block from their home, the the home of the Degnans, the police make a really, really grotesque discovery. So they find Suzanne, little Suzanne, they find her head in a sewer.
2: Hmm.
1: Oh, I know. And then over the course of the night, they continue to search the sewers, finding her legs and her lower lower torso separately. So like in separate places at about 10 o'clock and then at around midnight, they find her upper body wrapped in a sugar bag. But even more shockingly, she has no arms. So this is obviously like completely grotesque. Like people are totally freaked out by this. Um, and the police, again, like keep up their search because, obviously, they don't have all the body parts. Uh, they're trying to, you know, obviously locate all of those. In the meantime, the medical examiner determines the cause of death to be strangulation and says that dismemberment took place after her death. Yeah, you'd so, hope so. I was going to say, thank God, says you. But anyway, yeah. so the police start hunting the neighbourhood for the place wherein Suzanne had been dismembered. So, like, obviously her body has been disposed of close to this house. They think, okay, well, like, surely she was dismembered, like, somewhere in the area. So, in a basement laundry room in a block of apartments, which was, like, a couple of streets away from the Degnans, they find hair, bone fragments, and blood. And the, the hair, like, was blonde hair, and it looked very like Suzanne's. And they also found, like, actual flesh. They found some flesh as well, and a large hacksaw. So clearly they're like, OK, So obviously they're like, look, this has to be where Suzanne was cut off. Like, this can't be a coincidence. So they hone in on the building's caretaker, who is a 65-year-old Belgian immigrant called Hector. So even though he has a solid alibi, they're absolutely convinced it is this guy. So they spend the next 48 hours trying to force a confession out of him, but they get nothing. He's so badly beat, beaten by police. He later sues the Chicago Police Force, and he's awarded twenty thousand dollars pe- twenty thousand dollars pe- for pain and suffering, which kind of surprised me actually. That even at that time, uh, you could sue the city for. Like being beaten in a in a, in a confession yeah. situation or interrogation situation. Like obviously it's great that he got the money, but it did surprise me that they actually did make awards like that. He got the
2: ran. He got the same amount of money as the ransom.
1: I know. That's what <laughs> I thought when I read that. I was like, this can't be a coincidence. <laughs> um, but I think it is. I think just it seemed to me like twenty thousand just was a popular figure to throw out there at the time.
2: They just had a lot of pre-printed uh, slips of paper <laughs> they had to use. Yeah, all.
1: like the, those huge checks. They're like, We're <laughs> just, yeah, we'll just sign it and it's good to go. So <laughs> over the next few weeks, they continue to hunt, obviously, for anyone they think that could be connected to this killing. The media are obviously completely all over this as well. So they're under massive pressure to solve this, the police, and they're kind of feeding a lot of stuff into the media. So this kind of becomes problematic later on. Uh, So the FBI come back in the meantime with two prints from the ransom note. But the Chicago police are actually kind of a bit pissed off because they've kind of rounded up a series of suspects. And none of the obviously the prints don't match anyone that they've been looking for or looking at, I should say, over the last few weeks. So they're a little bit kind of annoyed and frustrated because. The prince would suggest that this was another person, but they already kind of have their catalogue of people that they've been going through. And then in late February, Suzanne's arms were finally found in another sewer three blocks away from the Degnan's house. So bizarrely, there is evidence to show that they were put in the sewer at a later stage because they're so well preserved, indicating that the killer had hung on to them for a while.
2: And then returned to pretty much the same area.
1: Yeah, it's a bit okay. weird, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's all weird, obviously, but, you know, it's just another kind of bizarre twist. To it. So the coroner makes a statement. And again, like the media are all over this because the media and the police are very much kind of in, I guess, they're kind of in cahoots um, because they just really want to solve this case. So the, the coroner makes a statement that whoever dismembered her body obviously knew what they were doing because no joints were damaged so they're thinking the killer was an experienced carver had some kind of medical experience given the skilled nature of the cutting. Okay. So you're like, okay, that kind of like limits us. You know, you're talking about a bit more of a niche cohort there, like in, in terms of somebody who actually would be able to do this with minimal damage in the process because there were just so many clean yeah. cuts.
2: A surgeon or a very good butcher.
1: Uh, like yeah you would think actually I thought that as well like butcher but for some reason the coroner had specifically said like somebody with medical experience but I thought the same like maybe a butcher could now, that's be, just could a be class the classic thing. thing
2: they're trying to they're trying to un, 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 underplay the skills of a butcher because you all know if you get the right butcher he'd be as good as a surgeon doing the job on you
1: justice for butchers absolutely <laughs> well look I, if you're ever in need of a tonsillectomy, I think definitely hit up your local butcher first and just see how it works out
2: Yeah, they're the same thing, just different titles. They
1: are. Yeah, totally. So by June 1946, the case has really run aground. They've nothing to go on and seemingly no leads whatsoever. But that is until they have a breakthrough on June 26. So a young man is thwarted by police in his attempt to burgle a home. So he's basically this guy. He's burglaring this house. Well, apartment, I should say. The police come along and obviously towards him in the process and he runs away while he's running away, he shoots at officers, but then hilariously, I mean, this is just something like, I don't can't believe this happens in real life. He actually knocks himself unconscious, uh, by falling flower pots. Okay. It just seems insane. So this flower pot falls down, hits him in the head and he's knocked unconscious. He's then arrested and the young man in question is a 17-year-old called William Hirons. So the police realize that the apartment he's tried to break into is just a couple of streets away from the Degnan's home. And this is what convinces them that this guy is somehow connected to the murder of Suzanne. They're like, this can't be a coincidence, which seems a bit of a stretch.
2: OK, yeah, you know, nothing I mean, else on him.
1: They, well, now this guy, he wasn't exactly an angel. That's the only thing. But they kind of just automatically assume that this is somehow connected to Suzanne's murder, even though, like, the only real, I guess the only real thing linking them would be, like, an attempted forced entry. That would be, you know, the only thing. But it turns out, anyway, this guy, William, he's only 17, but he does have a really long history of arrests for multiple burglaries. So his first arrest happened when he was... 13 and he seems to have been this kind of guy like he wasn't particularly poor you know he was middle class like just as in maybe a bit of a kleptomaniac or something Uh, but at the time of his arrest he was actually a student in the University of Chicago so obviously they arrest him they go straight to his dorm room and search the dorm room where they find a scrapbook of kind of Nazi memorabilia a guide to sex a book, which another book, which kind of explored like sexual deviances, and then they also find this <laughs> so he had, like, surgical tools.
2: Okay, a guide to sex and the book of sexual <laughs> deviances. So he like he, he he read the guide to sex and said, okay, I've got this. I'll, I'll you know what I mean, like.
1: <laughs> I think he read the guide to sex and was like, I just feel this isn't covering enough,
2: and yeah, then and went then off got- and
1: got the book of sexual deviances. The the one the guide to sex was actually a marriage handbook. Okay. So it was like you know, basically marriage handbook guide to sex within obviously the institution of marriage. Yeah. And then now the other you're one was. <laughs> now that you're married, now you can explore your sexual demons. Turn to page two. <laughs> yeah, and he also had this set of surgical tools. So obviously, so the 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 police then were like, okay, this this is like tick tick. So it must be this guy. So and he said he he
2: said he was in the Chicago University.
1: Yes, which is so it's strange because he for all intents and purposes appeared like this totally normal, you know, fair-haired <laughs> student who what was, was just doing his thing "Oh, I don't know actually. I'm going to look that I, I might look that up." But he okay. you know, right. he was like an academic guy. Uh like he was young, he was only 17, but then weirdly, like he did have these Convictions, which is strange, yeah. and you know you do kind of wonder what was the story with that because his first burglary was when he was thirteen, which is very young. Okay. But um, oh, hang on. What do, do, what do you what do so you do when you still,
2: burgle when you're thirteen? Like you you you, you nick somebody's TV and they explain to your parents that you somehow have a new TV? Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's how does it? It's, what's well, a
1: lot? Apparently, I know what you mean. He didn't. He, I guess he seemed to be like it seemed like maybe he was just a bit of a kleptomaniac because in when they searched his dorm room, like they did find his loot in inverted commas. And it was kind of stuff like, you know, like small stuff like jewellery, like things like that.
2: Yeah. Okay. So it was
1: almost like he was kind of taking tokens with him. uh. But like, you know, it wouldn't have been anything massive, but like he would he would take jewellery and stuff. So I just found there that he was studying mathematics.
2: Okay. Well, yeah. I was
1: going to say, I was going to say, which could explain the surgical kit, but I think I need to learn more about mathematics because I don't think it does. OK, he well, had like a really sharp, mathematical set.
2: if you had a really good sharp compass and he a good for, pencil yeah, pair.
1: This is it. He was mad for, he had a, he had a sturdy ruler and uh, a compass. So police take William's fingerprints and they say that they're a match for the prince on the ransom note. So. Ding, ding, ding. This is our guy. The media go wild and are all over this aspect of the story from the get go. The police then announce that they've linked William to two or more murders in the area, which, of course, creates even more of a reporting frenzy. So the year previous, there have been two gruesome murders, which had really shocked Chicago. The first was in June 1945, a middle-aged single mother called Josephine Ross had been killed in her own apartment in the morning at about half past ten. She'd been stabbed and found by one of her daughters at lunchtime, her teenage daughters at lunchtime. And disturbingly, her dress had actually been wrapped around her head. So the poor thing had been killed in her own bedroom. And like the middle of the day, and it obviously stunned, you know, the community at the time. And then in December, so again, they pursued various angles, but nothing came of it. And in December, another woman was found murdered nearby. And this woman's name was Frances Brown. And she had just gone back from serving in the female section of the Navy called the Waves, which I think is actually quite a cool name.
2: Katrina and the Waves? Is like, there...
1: Yeah, I've never heard of the Waves before. It's it's quite,
2: yeah.
1: it's quite catchy. Okay. So the poor woman had been stabbed and shot. Like Josephine, her head had been wrapped in her own clothes. The killer had left a note. So uh, on the living room wall. So this now, you know, becomes very pertinent. So basically, this had been written on the wall. And the note. Sorry, this this had been found in the living room. Uh, On the wall. And it said, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Okay. And this had been written in lipstick. Hence the nickname, the Lipstick Killer.
2: Okay. Not the Lipstick Rider. The Lipstick Killer.
1: (laughs) The Lipstick Killer. They were like, I'm fairly sure the person who wrote this little note to us is also the person who did the killing here. So let's just call them the, the lipstick killer. Yeah,
2: they wouldn't go with the same clothes strangler They went for lipstick killer, because it oh, it's a catcher headline. It, I, it is that it like.
1: a catchy headline. And you see, of course, this is the, well, are you sure, hello, like you, you they obviously call them the king of media, so you know all about this. But I guess it was a time as well where they were all about the catchy headlines. So Oh yeah, the,
2: the, the, the SEOs on a uh, lipstick killer would, be through the roof. Do you know what
1: I mean? It's, yeah, it appeals I mean, to I so many demographics. I, <laughs> like, lipstick tick, killer tick. So they match <laughs> William's prints to a print they say they found in Frances Brown's environment. And since, so they they claim that they can link William to Frances Brown, Francis Brown's murder. But because her murder was so similar to Josephine's death in that they both had clothes, their own clothes wrapped around their head. They presume it's the same killer. So by extension, they uh, essentially implicate William in Josephine Ross's death as well, even though there's no evidence to link link him to that murder. It's purely just because they were so similar, the ways the women were killed. So the media is obsessed with this story, clearly, and the public are hanging on every twist and turn. Even William's own defence lawyers openly doubt his innocence. So not ideal. Like, if these are your lawyers, they're like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, he does seem like a bit of a creep.
2: I mean, like, how how did they reveal that to the media? Or?
1: So to the media, and then also when it came to Williams' trial, they talked about the fact that like, they, you know, they had th- a really strange dynamic with the prosecution, the state's attorney's office. So they were, like, thanking the state's attorney's office for serving the community so well and putting this person away and all that. It was just really, really strange dynamic. Okay. And they they really seemed to kind of want to distance themselves from William because I guess as well, like at the time, you know, like the crime, certainly especially Suzanne's murder was so heinous yeah. that they were just kind of trying to distance themselves from him and he was seen as this complete social pariah, I guess.
2: Yeah, um, it, it never it never goes the other way where the prosecution hint that they might think the defence is innocent. I think this
1: is it. Like they always have to be so steadfast. And yeah. the police then asked William to provide a handwriting sample. They tell the media. So again, they're just you know in the media's ear the whole time that his handwriting sample also has the same misspellings that have been found on Suzanne's ransom note. So safety is spelled S. A F T Y and wait is spelt with kind of it's spelt with an E on the end. And to police, of course, this is hugely incriminating evidence. Um so another thing as well, uh the, the after several days of questioning, William is ejected with true serum, where he reveals this alter ego, George Merman, who insists is resp- he, he insists is responsible for the death of the murders. Again, again, the media really latch onto this. Like, uh, you know, it's a great story. This kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde alter ego tale. And they run with the, the truth serum confessions. They go into massive detail. The public are just lapping all of this up. By mid-July, the state's attorney is still denying, though, that William has actually confessed to anything. So what's interesting is, is that the police are feeding all these details to the media. But the state's attorney is like, we actually haven't got a confession here. And they really want to get a confession out of this guy. But they're like, this hasn't actually happened. Like, we have not had him say that he's done this. Uh, Which, of course, runs counter to what the police have been saying which is that he has confessed, albeit under this influence of truth serum and via the kind of conduit of this alter ego, George Merriman.
2: By truth serum, did I mean like a few pints or like what's the. <laughs> no,
1: do you know what? Hang on. I'm going to find the science behind. You know, what's this actual thing. It's like potassium or something. No, well, potassium is what you find in spuds. Truth serum. I Like obviously, you know, goes I saying we don't really use this anymore, but. It was oh yeah, so it, what drug is truth serum. This is the one we want. Okay. Um so the ones used are sodium ametal, pen pentothal sodium, and then something called secanol.
2: Okay. It
1: basically mix them all together and supposedly the person tells the truth, but clearly this has been put to bed a long time ago at the time it was something they you know they wheeled out every once in a while uh but not the most reliable evidence
2: okay because yeah if if it worked they would put it in the water for us all to have oh yeah which which may be the air
1: (laughs) i was gonna say that's my theory about fluoride it's basically truth serum so watch out Uh, Next, George, who you might remember—I know there's a lot. There's actually three Georges in the story. So George (laughs) Merman is this alter ego, supposedly that William has come up with under the influence of this drug concoction, which supposedly makes him tell the truth. Then the the original witness who had seen a man at 1 a.m. with the big shopping bag. His name uh, was George as well. So he comes along and identifies William. As the man he had seen the night of the murder, despite having a rich, and he said, "No, this is not the guy I saw." Uh, he's now done a complete one eighty, and okay. he says, "Yeah, no, this is this is definitely the fella." Uh, on August seventh, William confesses to all three murders. He says he doesn't actually remember what happened, Suzanne, but nonetheless, he reenacts the killing by going into the basement of the apartment block, obviously, you know, accompanied by police as well. But uh, so he goes into this apartment block and apparently reenacts this murder in full view of the media and crowds who have come to see the lipstick killer in the flesh. Again, none of this is ideal in terms of due process. Yeah. No. Uh, so William is given three consecutive life sentences. He's spared the death, uh, the death penalty, because he's pleaded guilty. Despite this, William almost immediately recants after sentencing and maintains his innocence. And it's now that people finally do start to question whether or not police actually have the right guy. So his his handful of supporters start looking into the case in more detail and a couple of anomalies emerge. So it turns out that the Chicago police had deprived William of sleep and food for a week. Forbidden him from seeing his family for four days and he refused to allow his lawyer to visit him for six days bearing in mind now like he this guy was a minor so denying yeah. him these things like is pretty egregious he also insists that he has been tor- he had been tortured beaten severely and on one off location he'd been tied to the bed by police and had ethyl poured onto his genitals
2: Oh Jesus
1: so essentially, they were like burning his willie off.
2: You would you would admit to anything if that was happening to you?
1: I mean, I don't have balls.
2: Even
1: <laughs> I would, even I would admit to whatever you want me to admit. Yeah. <laughs> if it, pouring ethanol on my imaginary balls.
2: Yeah, it doesn't even have to be balls. It could be it could be a finger. I'll see if I get you got me. I'll i sign whatever. Just just stop. Do you know what I mean? It's.
1: I mean, awful. And then we wor- I actually think this is worth again wor- again on the fifth day, please custody. He was given a spinal tap without anaesthetic, supposedly to check for brain damage. But again, like this was, you know, clearly just purely to inflict pain.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, a spinal tap. And then minutes after they gave him the spinal tap, they actually moved him to like this other place where they were going to give him a polygraph. And they couldn't actually perform the polygraph because like the young man was in so, like William was in so much agony so they postponed the test to the following day and then the next day uh, so they did they, they did the polygraph the following day and the police said at the time that the results were inconclusive but then the two guys who actually invented this polygraph machine they wrote a book in 1953 and they talked about this case and they said not alone were the results like not inconclusive. They were very much conclusive, and they indicated that William had been telling the truth when he said he was not guilty of any of these crimes. Okay. So pretty, you know, a pretty strong indictment there, really.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, the alter ego theory was also disputed. Firstly, like Shakar, truth system serum is notoriously unreliable, and a doctor present insisted after the fact that William had never actually confessed to murder. And the written transcripts of this truth serum sent sen- uh, session were actually kept secret, despite the fact that this is a case which garnered huge media attention, and so many other aspects had been fed to reporters. So, again, kind of cast a bit of doubt on that. Yeah. And then the handwriting then... So police stressed William's writing was a match. But then this other handwriting expert came along and doubted that this was so. So this expert was a guy called Herbert. And he was the same expert who had said at the trial, oh, yeah, no, like this is definitely the same person who's written these these notes. But then this guy then had said, well, no, actually, like initially I had said that I didn't think it was a match. So in other words, this guy had kind of said, I suppose, what the state's attorney attorney or the prosecutor wanted to hear And, you know, apparently this guy had been brought in after another expert had categorically said that this writing had not been in any way close to William's writing. So, in other words, the prosecutors just kept going until they found someone who told them kind of what they wanted to hear.
2: I get you. Okay.
1: you know, so, again, not, you know, a kind of... It, it just it, it just doesn't really paint the prosecution in a good light either um so William insisted that the police had actually like the big thing for me would have been the misspellings and then William said well actually the police told me how to misspell certain words
2: that's what I was Which, thinking did yeah. they dictate something or did they specifically have them copy something do you know what I mean
1: Yeah, so this is it that he said well they told me to spell the words like that again, like completely blowing that piece of of evidence like wide open. And again, you know, the witness then said like, oh well which clearly you know, it didn't match the initial description of the man he saw in the middle of the night. He was like, oh yeah, like when I first saw William, I didn't think it was him. But then, you know, I just you know thought about it and the police talked to me and I just ended up saying at the trial, oh, it was William. So, again, the witness element is kind of, again, cast aside. The fingerprints experts then said that William's prints were not a match for those found in Francis Brown's apartment. Again, the state's attorney managed to find another expert who would come in and said, oh, no, like they're definitely a match. But the okay. print itself that they found in Francis Brown's apartment was a really strange fingerprint because it was so perfect, it kind of suggested it was like, I guess, it was almost like a professional fingerprint. Uh, so it kind of suggested maybe you're pointed to the fact that this print could have been planted. Given he had a criminal record, of course, police would have had access to his fingerprints.
2: Okay, I get you.
1: So the ransom note as well was a bit dodged. So Suzanne's ransom note had been passed around a lot. And the print that had supposedly matched Williams was also not deemed to be so by the metric used by the FBI, which apparently demands the to of 12 similar points to be concluded a match, whereas Williams' print only had nine. So it didn't actually meet the criteria for being a match, even though the prosecutor in Chicago said, Oh, this evidence is inconclusive, which or sorry, this evidence is uh this evidence is conclusive, which of course it wasn't.
2: Okay. Uh
1: so the Chicago police then said, so the FBI the FBI were like, you can't say this is a match because there's only nine points here and you need to have twelve. And the Chicago police then said, well actually we found a palm print This is despite them having sent off the piece of evidence because they claimed to lack the the requisite print technology. So all of a sudden they're like, we found our own prints. And the FBI are like, no, you didn't. Like, this is completely ridiculous. So it did materialize as well. William was not the only person of interest in relation to this case. So another man who'd actually confessed to killing Zuban was a guy called Richard Russell Thomas. And he was awaiting to be sentenced in Texas at the time for abusing his daughter. So like this guy was like a really bad guy. He gave a confession days before William was connected to the murder. So he had actually been in Chicago. That was proven at the time of the murder. He contacted authorities. He was obviously in jail awaiting sentencing. And he said, listen, just, you know, I did that crime in Chicago. That was me. And he had previous charges for kidnapping, extortion, which, uh, you know, would kind of suggest that, like, okay, yeah, this could be the guy. And also, from a visual point of view, his handwriting was said to be a lot, lot closer to that of the ransom note than Williams had been. Okay. So, Chicago police officers were on their way to interview. You did it. You
2: said Chicago. I was waiting for you. What did I say? <laughs> you were really going to say Chicago and then you said Chicago. Chicago. <laughs> and we'll just That's say sorry, police
1: officers. <laughs> Illinois police officers.
2: <laughs> no, you were Illinois- saying you were, you were saying Chicago, but I'm always waiting for Irish people to, to let out of Chicago and Chicago. uh You, you didn't do, you didn't overdo. Him. Maybe it wasn't yeah, too but- it wasn't too harsh and over, but I got you. I, well, I, think think it that, did. That, I
1: think that was my second last Chicago as well. Damn if anybody anyway. listens
2: if anybody listens back to this and they think that Judy did say Chicago, that's because she's manipulated the audio. And uh, <laughs>
1: I'm definitely editing that out, like for sure. And people are like, That man's delusional. Uh, yeah. So Illinois, police officers were on their way to interview Richard. In Texas, when they arrested William, and so they kind of just honed in on William and Richard was forgotten as a possible lead. They were like, forget about Richard. We've got our guy. Richard then, after William was charged, like with the murders, recanted his confession. Actually, it was after William confessed to the murders, I should say. And of course, like it is entirely possible that this guy was just, a, you know, an attention grabbing creep. But it's just one interesting line of alternative inquiry at the same time. OK. And then the final the final little twist to this, because I find this incredibly interesting and there's actually a lot of writing on this. Um, if you if you are interested in this aspect, there are so many articles uh on this aspect of the case so unbelievably another theory came to light in more recent times linking suzanne's murder to that of do you want to take a guess like probably i'd say the most notorious unsolved murder of the 20th century in america anyway in the states thinking like l.a
2: Oh, I can't, the name escapes me, but I, but I know I know, you
1: know, I know you're thinking the same one. The Black Dahlia.
2: I actually don't know much about that. So uh,
1: you'd, lo- you'd love it. Yeah, there's, I, there's so much to it. I'll
2: give it a read. Uh, I'll, I'll give the case oh, a read up. Okay. There's
1: loads of stuff. So the Black Dahlia, of course, was like this huge case in L.A. in the mid 20th century Steve Hadell was this ex-LA detective who in 2003 wrote, like, it's just the most insane story, this whole thing. But uh, he wrote this book called The Black Dahlia Adventure, and it's just the craziest book. Uh, it's uh, like his family was so nuts. It's I can't even begin to start on it. But he did accuse in that book his father, George Hadell, of murdering Elizabeth Short a.k.a. the Black Dahlia was what she came to be known as. So uh, his father had certainly had form for this crime. He'd been a suspect in the case and had also been suspected of murdering his secretary. And he had been tried for wafer incest against his own daughter. Oh, uh, so all in all, he was just this awful, sadistic person. And this guy, Steve, who was a former detective, he discovers that Elizabeth and Suzanne have been identically cut up in the exact same way. So they've oh, been okay. cut cut in such a way that could bypass any bone because apparently apparently there's this is something which obviously demands a lot of skill, but there's only one part of the body where you can sever a body in two and not disrupt the bone. So both Suzanne and Elizabeth Short have been cut up in like an identical way.
2: What 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 is that part and <laughs> curiosity?
1: I, do, I think, I wonder. It's apparently it's like the bottom. It's it's somewhere like the bottom of your back.
2: Like below the ribcage, but above the hips kind of? I,
1: I, I'm i not quite sure, but I did. I was, because I was listening to, I was listening to a few bits of bobs, reading a few bits of bobs. And I, I think it was something to do with that like lower pelvic area.
2: Okay. Uh,
1: but it's, but it's like, it's really precise because it's just, you have to just cut in a certain way yeah. so it's not to drop like Yeah. The, yeah. It's really, it, it it definitely was like lower, I saw a couple of places and I did listen to something and they were saying like the lower pelvic, bottom of the spine kind of area, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't be sure. I, I really hope you're not planning on reenacting this
2: column. No, but if if there's ever an emergency situation, I don't know what the situation would be and, the knife I have hasn't been sharpened for a while. And, you know, I only have one go. It's good to know these things.
1: Well, it is. It is good to know. And you know what? It's bad because it's something I would have just thought if you cut up a human body, it's just going to be blood gore fest. Now, obviously, there was blood, but I didn't think you could cut. You could sever a body so neatly. And of course, like with the Black Danny as well. Like her body had been dismembered and it was this whole thing whereby her body was dismembered and then it was rearranged in a public place in the middle of the day. And it was just crazy. But the dismemberment was a huge part of that murder. Uh, So it's 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 just an interesting thing. And also the father was a physician. He was a doctor. So he did have the knowledge to do this.
2: You, I, think, like, I, you, you think if that's your profession and you didn't want to get caught, you'd, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the what the comparison would be, but, you know, if, if somebody from a different profession was killing somebody and they didn't want to get caught, they might not leave the hallmarks of their profession.
1: They might be deliberately on the body. sappy. Yeah. Like
2: if, you, if you're a professional baseball player, you're not going to beat someone to death with your baseball.
1: Yes, that, like you to need to I mean, I try to deflect attention. I think with this guy, like certainly having read this, because uh, I read Steve Adele's books uh, a couple of years ago, and there, there are loads of podcasts as well on this family, but he seemed to just be like arrogance isn't even the word. Like he really looked down on police and everyone, everyone really as being beneath him, intellectually speaking, and he just felt completely invincible and untouchable when it came to anything, this doctor, Dr. George O'Dell. So I think probably it, it might have been part of the kick for him to do something that was essentially like a calling card, knowing that the police were never going to cop it was him.
2: Yeah. OK. It was I like get maybe you.
1: that that was his thinking on it. But like in saying that, like maybe he didn't do this. Like he used to, he used to say. Um, but, you know, obviously, go, bringing it back to the fact that the police had initially thought the person who had dismembered poor little Suzanne's body had some kind of surgical experience. So, again, pointing to Dr. Hotel rather than William, whose surgical kit, that, the one they confiscated from his college room, had been way too small to perform anything like dismembering a human body and hadn't contained any blood or any bone fragments. But once the police had their man, they never really followed up on any alternative theories as to who the lipstick killer actually had been. William remained in prison despite his supporters calling for repeated reviews. And, you know, he had a lot of uh, kind of legal avenues. And, you know, the, the, the he had various lawyers like doing pro bono work trying to get him out or at least trying to get him considered for parole. But he remained in prison and he never he was never, you know, granted parole. He was the first prisoner to earn a college degree in the state of Illinois in mathematics and was always a model inmate. But again, you know, didn't get any chance of regaining his freedom. He died in 2012 at the age of 83. And that is the story of the lipstick killer.
2: Okay, so he went from 17 to 83 in prison
1: how grim is that
2: and somehow got a college degree for you know anybody who's thinking that they can't this thing's holding them back do you know what i mean
1: yeah i it's well it just goes to show and he very much like he was an exemplary prisoner uh he i mean imagine well, I'm just doing the maths what would that be 66 years in prison
2: yeah 66 years jesus that's it's second. a long time yeah, that, yeah, no, that is, and he he must have just very very quickly accepted his plight, and that's why he became a model prisoner.
1: Yeah, and I guess it's it's just it never ceases to amaze me how people adjust to their new realities.
2: Yeah. So he
1: just, you know, obviously he, you know, found his focus, which was academia. He was really good as well at leading other prisoners, and he's very involved in like schooling in the prison and all of that. So. He kind of, I guess, went down kind of an academic route within prison. But it's incredibly sad that he was never considered for parole. I mean, clearly, like a lot of this evidence is dubious at best.
2: Yeah. Well, he sounds a lot like uh, what's the said in the Shawshank, Tim Robbins. Oh, yes. Actually, so yeah. if, I, if I was working there, I'd be like, Mr. Smiley over there. He's definitely got something planned. He's, he's planning an escape. You know what I mean? I wouldn't trust him it's, at all.
1: I know and it's it's you kind of you're kind of winning William to have made a bit of a run for it but he never did like he was just an exemplary prisoner uh, and it's it's strange because sorry well I shouldn't say it's strange because obviously this was a huge life change for him but you know he did have quite a criminal record as a teenager but seems to have uh, like this traumatic experience of the trial and everything he went through it uh, yeah. seems to have totally changed him in terms of character In that then when he hit prison, he was just a model prisoner in every sense of the word.
2: But then was there. So by the looks of things, there wasn't any similar killings after he went to prison because the lipstick note said, stop me before I kill more. And it'd be kind of rare if they killed one more and then we're done. They'd usually keep going. So, yeah, but a, that's
1: actually very true.
2: Yeah. So, well, I'm not, maybe maybe they just started to kill people in different ways. I don't know. But it it kind of what happened then if they just stopped.
1: Yes. And it, but that's actually a really, really good point. I didn't think of that at all. I guess the only thing I will say in William's defense is the only thing linking him to that crime was the fingerprint, which just seemed to be good to be true. It was yeah. almost like a professional print. So other than that, and then, you know, again, this handwriting expert saying, yeah, it could be Williams, and all these people coming out after the fact saying, no, like, that's not the same handwriting. But I know what you mean, like, what became of that guy? So he obviously, yeah. this other fellow had committed, presuming it was a guy, committed these two murders, which were very similar, in the space of a six-month period. Now, in saying that, there hadn't been... Because when Suzanne's murder happened in January, so it would have been like, you know, say a month after Francis Brown's killing.
2: Yeah.
1: I guess, you know, during that period, yeah, I guess I guess there weren't there weren't any crimes similar to those of, say, Francis Brown and Jacqueline Ross. It, they were similar and there wasn't anything else like that.
2: Well, he probably was taking a break for Christmas. I but, do, uh,
1: you do wonder, though, like it's interesting.
2: But but also it, it the, the, the the it sounds like there's a big difference in the age between the first two murders and the third one, and the circumstances yeah. in the third one, like going into a house that's occupied by a family and stuff, it all feels a bit mad. So
1: and it doesn't to, like Suzanne's murder. It doesn't really fit with the other two, does it?
2: No, but, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of sad that he's dead now, and we'll we'll never know.
1: We'll never should, know.
2: Should we get justice for the lipstick killer?
1: I mean, like, I would think, I think most of the evidence now when you come back and reassess it, like, I think certainly reasonable doubt is there.
2: I'd say so. Do you think part uh, of it, part of him being happy in, in um, him being in jail is because he got a sweet nickname, the lipstick killer? <laughs> like, you know, like you, you, you could sit down today and say, that's it. I'm beginning a rap career. I'm just going to work out my name. And you wouldn't hope it out in half as good as that.
1: It's it's so, a pretty good nickname.
2: Yeah, like you got to be quite content to go. I could live a great life, but I could have a bad name. So this way, I'm living the bad life, but I got a good name.
1: Now the only thing is, I don't know does the lipstick killer inspire fear, or would it inspire respect from your prisoner prisoner peers? I'm not quite sure the lipstick killer has that effect. That's the only thing. It's very You're catchy. In. But I, I, I just I wonder how seriously the lads would take it.
2: But it paints the picture of a colourful conversationist. Uh, which <laughs> you know, if you're stuck in prison for a long time, he's
1: the guy you want to. He's the guy you want to bunk with.
2: Yeah, well, are, are, you, are you gonna, you know, are you gonna, are you gonna, do you want to share a conversation with the lipstick killer or with, I don't know? Cinderblock Connor you know what I mean it's uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, going, I'm going for the lipstick
1: just us for Cinderblock Connor I'm going to have to do that now next time Colin, <laughs> it's been such a pleasure thanks so much for coming on is, if no we worries. want to find you where are you
2: uh, so you can get me at Colin McGlinchey on Twitter and at Colin McGlinchey on uh, Instagram I do believe and then when the, hopefully when the pandemic is over and the comedy comes back Every Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday in the Stag's Head. That's the Comedy Crunch I Comedy Crunch. Oh, oh, and it's such a brilliant
1: gig. And we're crossing our fingers now. You'll be back hopefully sooner rather than later. Yep.
2: Yeah, hopefully all going to plan. It should be we should be back in the in the, in the coming weeks hopefully. So we'll see how it goes.
1: Go but on yeah. the Comedy Crunch. Thank <laughs> you so much, Cullen. Thanks no for worries. chatting murder with me. You're the best.
2: No, it's, oh, it's, uh, there's nothing better to chat about. Thanks for that.
1: Thanks so much, Cullen. Chat soon. Bye.
2: Chat soon. Good luck. Bye bye.
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free, or go to Amazon.com/slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,